We've all seen photos in the media of uniformed officers unloading hundreds of kilos of drugs. Maybe a record seizure intercepted at sea and brought to shore. But what if these cops were instead working for drug smugglers and not preventing crime, but committing it? Don't miss this episode of In the Chill the Night, where we expose the truth. Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Chill of the Night, episode number 20. I'm here with my old pal, George Belsky, and our special guest tonight, Carlos Canino, ATF ever special agent. Tonight, Carlos is going to talk to us about an undercover case that's a bit unusual called Operation Part-Time. Most of the time, undercover agents work on bad guys. This time, this undercover agent works on good guys who turned out to be bad guys. He'll tell you the story. So without further ado, let's go. Welcome, Carlos. Welcome, George. How are we doing tonight, fellas? Doing great. Uh, pleasure to be here with uh, with my buddy and, and, and good friend, Carlos. Um, again, I, uh, I met him on my first day in ATF in Miami. Um, been a been a mentor uh, and a friend and just an all around uh, dynamite agent uh, and, and a great leader. Uh, never forgot where his cuffs were, uh, even though he moved up pretty high in the food chain. So it's a it's pretty happy to be here a better testimonial you can't ask for carlos no appreciate it pete georgie good seeing you again pal and i hey. know ray my buddy ray cadetti is is behind the controls working um it's a pleasure to be on um but pete before we start and i'm glad ray's on pete i swear to god if you yell at me because every time we talk which is a couple of times a day um you end up yelling at me. So if you yell at me, I swear I'm going to your house tell and I'm going to burn your tomato plants down. Tell, tell George. You tell it to George. And every, everybody pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> you guys yeah. piss me off. So, so listen, Carlos, tell us the story, man. So, the, uh, right, the case, this case is interesting. Um, I was an agent in, uh, in the Miami Field Division in uh, Puerto Rico, right? Puerto Rico is part of the Miami Field Division. Um, and so uh, I was working. This was uh, the end of 2004, the beginning of 2005. An ATF task force officer, Puerto Rico Police Department task force officer, uh, came into the office one day and said, hey, I have information from uh, this informant um, about uh, cops doing rips, drug rips. Um, we, need, we, need to, um, we need to interview the guy. So we brought him in, sat him down, interviewed the guy. Um, <clears throat> say, can you set up a meeting with these guys? And he said, yeah, no problem. So we set up a meeting for mid-January, late January of 05. Uh, I'm the undercover agent. Go to that meeting uh, with that informant. Uh, we're at this uh, bar not too far from the airport in Puerto Rico. And uh, we're meeting with these guys. And one of the guys keeps getting up and going to the bathroom. He keeps getting up and going to the bathroom. Um, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, why is he doing this? Anyway, it was a get to know you type of meeting, right? So when we leave, uh, I walk away, right? This is a, a meeting. This is a meeting prior to this about a month prior to this. Um, so I get up, leave, walk away, right? Do my counter surveillance. Um, 
I get back in my car, right? Doing my counter surveillance looking. Um, anyway, I get to the office and uh, Orlando Felix was one of the, one of the, he was a senior supervisor in Puerto Rico, calls me into his office and he says, Hey, um, we just had a blue on blue. Uh, you were the three bad guys you were meeting with. Uh, one of them is a Puerto Rico department of corrections. Uh, he was a case manager. The other two guys are legit bad guys. Right. But so our informant got in with, right. They didn't know who he was our informant. He, he met up with these guys and that's how it started. So what happens is right. We, we now have a blue on blue. Um, I wasn't privy to this meeting, but right. ATF leadership and the Miami field division met with Puerto Rico PD. They came up with a plan. Uh, the plan was, um, right. We don't, we don't work the bad guys that they're already working with. Um, we can work, um, a different set of bad guys, right? Cause one, I forgot to say one guy was not at that meeting. Anyway, our informant reached out to this, the bad guy that wasn't at that meeting. We set up another meeting this time with an unwitting informant. And then that's how this thing starts. Um, where I meet them and then he introduces me to that, that photo that you put on February 21st. That's the, uh, that's the initial meeting with, with two at the beginning is two corrupt Puerto Rico police department officers. So, so what are these guys, what do these guys want from you and what do you want from them in so this, the, in the, this, in this, in this scenario? Right. So the scenario is that I'm a drug trafficker coming from Miami and I want I want police protection. Right. I want to be able to move uh, my cocaine. I want to transit my cocaine through Puerto Rico and I want it to be protected by uniformed police officers. And, and they're and they're keen to do that, allegedly. Right. They jumped. They jumped at the chance like you wouldn't believe, which was extremely disheartened. I mean, disheartening. Right. You know how it goes, right? When somebody comes into your office and uh, alleges that guys that carry badges are dirty, your heart sinks and you don't want it to be true. Uh, but you have to do your job and you have to investigate. Um, and right, this this happened to be true. So now, now at the beginning, uh, at the beginning, you said that some of the information that you had was that these guys were doing drug rips and, and, and for the edification of the listeners, um, they were ripping off drug dealers and then distributing the drugs somehow or, or another. Were, were you not afraid that you were going to be the victim of a, of a drug rip here? I was not because of the, uh, and I'm not going to go in, right. I'm, I'm not going to go into the techniques exactly. And, That's uh, fine. Tactics that we use to skip, um, skip it. Skip it. Go ahead. Right. So no, I wasn't. I wasn't worried. I was pretty confident in in our techniques and and uh, practices that um, we could we could do this without them uh, wanting to rip me. So take us through it. So like so that picture right February twenty first we meet. We meet at Lupi's restaurant, which is right there in uh, uh, Isla Verde, uh, Puerto Rico, which is right by the airport. Um, which one is you? I'm the guy uh, with the red sleeves and the, and the blue uh, with the back to the camera. The guy on my left is one of the corrupt police officers. The guy directly in front of me, the heavy set guy, he's an unwitting informant. The guy with the red hat is a corrupt police officer. And the guy to my right is the confidential informant. That confidential informant um, had just gotten out of Puerto Rico State Prison after 24 years for a homicide. He swore, he swore to me up and down that he never committed that homicide, that he was framed by police officers. And that's why he came forward when he heard about police corruption. That guy and a whole lot of them uh, were let out by mistake. There was a clerical error. 
um, and Puerto Rico DOC paroled um, a lot of these guys. Well, they started recalling them once they realized what had happened. Well, this guy was already working for us. So we had to go, uh, right? We had to go to Puerto Rico Department of Corrections um, and very delicately tell them that we weren't sending this guy back, uh, right? He was working for the feds. Um, and so they agreed to a lifetime of uh, probation or parole. Uh, for this guy, right? So this guy did 24 years for a murder. He says he didn't commit, um, but while he was in the prison, he ran he ran one of the one of the major gangs there. So this guy was a major shot caller uh, who had a huge reputation in prison and a huge reputation on the street. So which which was was great for my undercover persona. So put put this in context for us. What? What do these these guys that you're 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 uh, using for protection of your operation? What how big do they think this operation is? What kind of a context can you put it in? What kind of money do they think is involved? What kind of money are you leading them to believe is involved? So we we get a sense that um, um, what 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 the stress level is here for everybody. So so for each load, um, uh, I was paying them four thousand dollars a piece to move, uh, uh, I think, I think it was 20 or 30 kilos of load, um, uh, from point A to point B total. The total conspiracy was 370 kilo, uh, 340, 300 and yeah, 340 kilos of cocaine, 30 kilos of heroin. That was the total amount for the, for the conspiracy against, all, all of the police officers were, were five in total. You got quick math on that? What's what kind of money you're talking about, <laughs> George? <laughs> you got your calculator, George? Yeah, you know, that, was, what was, sorry, what not was happening. Interesting during this, and George will know, and you guys will know what I'm talking about. So, when this case cooks off, um, because it was a police corruption case, uh, the standing order in, in at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Puerto Rico was that the FBI would take the lead. Um, that didn't go over well uh, in the ATF office. Um, so uh, the the special U.S. attorney, who was the former U.S. attorney, uh, Guillermo Hill, uh, had been brought back out of retirement to head up the federal strike forces. Um, right, he's a legendary federal prosecutor in Puerto Rico, um, and he and I had a good relationship. So when he finds out that we have this case. He calls me into his office and he says, hey, you ever do a police corruption case before? I said, yeah, I worked an undercover case in Miami on a dirty customs inspector. And he says, OK, you know, uh, this afternoon I want you to bring uh, bring your team up here. So after lunch, we brought everybody up to his office and he gives us a doctoral level class on how to conduct a proper police corruption investigation. It was, I should have taken notes because I would have had a doctor's degree by now. It was fantastic. Uh, no. And then he said, he went to the U.S. attorney and said, hey, uh, I want these guys to be the lead. Um, so he says, Carlos, do me a favor, call the FBI corruption case, uh, get a liaison um, from the FBI to work with you on this. So I called over, uh, the FBI sent two agents over. They, um, I wasn't in on this meeting, but they spoke with my supervisor. My supervisor came out and said, hey, they think we're a bunch of clowns. So they said, just keep us informed, right? Um, we'll, we'll, they'll send somebody over. So to we talking about luck, right? And I'll, I, I'll make a statement after this. They sent a brand new FBI agent to Puerto Rico. He was, he was, a, former, he was a former cop in California, became an FBI agent. They sent him to Puerto Rico. They put him in a corruption squad. Because he was new, right, he hadn't built up any relationships yet. Um, I don't think that the guys in the squad liked him very much. So they said, hey, go with those guys over there, the land of the misfit toys, and go work with them. So we brought him over. We gave him a proper briefing. And he says, hey, how much money do you guys need? And I said, I don't know, you know, 50000 I guess, to start. 
He says, I'll be right back. He comes back an hour later with $100,000, and he tells me, hey, Carlos, when this, when this runs out, call me, and I'll bring you another 100000 Your new best friend. He was Court, Courtney Sharn. Was, he was the best thing that could happen to us. He was fantastic. Great investigator. He fit right in. He should have been an ATF agent. Tip of the hat. Tip of the hat. But you Carlos. Know, yes, yes, Jordan. So um, let's go back. This is late 04, uh, early 05. How long have you been on the job? At this time, I had been on almost 15 years. Okay. And, and, I, and I know because, you know, I met you on my first day. Um, you had a lot of experience doing uh, the home invasion investigations. Um, really the Miami field division kind of, if they didn't invent it, they certainly, uh, perfected it and, and made the wheel a whole lot rounder in, in those days of doing those home invasion investigations. Um, were you part of the enhanced undercover program, uh, at, at this point, or were you just, uh, doing it because you knew how to do it? No, I was I was a original member of the uh, Enhanced Undercover program. And like I was telling Pete, you know, I, I'd love to sit here and tell you that I right, Joe Undercover guy, but we we Inspector Clouseaued our way uh through this case, right? Um and frankly, uh, guys in my generation that came on in nineteen ninety, all we were trying to do was replicate what Pete's generation had already done, right? Everybody yeah. wanted to, you know, I wanted to be uh, Eddie Benitez and Ariel Rios and and Dominic Prolophone and and uh, Alex Diatri and Smiley Rodarte and these guys, Carlos Torres, right? That's I just wanted to be what what they were, and yeah, and that's how right. That's how I got involved, and um, you know, I I. Most of the time when I was doing an undercover deal, in the back of my mind, I would think these guys have to, I can't believe these guys are so stupid. They don't think I'm a, uh, I'm a federal agent almost, almost every time, but hey man, it worked, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, we sat down with the, uh, with the, uh, the special task force uh, prosecutor. He's now taking this case um, because you were going to be engaging in, you know, obviously illegal activity. Did you have to get like permission letters from them that said, Hey, you know, um, you're allowed to do certain stuff. Um, or, or what were some of your boundaries on, on doing this? Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I, um, I don't believe we got any, and obviously, right. It's a police corruption case. So yeah, it goes right. It goes all the way to the top at ATF and it goes all the way to the top to main DOJ to get the blessing. Um, but we were, we were running this like we would run a game on, um, anybody else. Right. Um, and it's, you know, what's funny, George, we, and talking about, uh, not seeing, you know, 30,000 foot picture as a, as a street agent, um, at the end, I wanted to do a home invasion on these guys. Right. And <laughs> Scott Adams says, Hey, uh, genius. How's it going to look when the ATF SRT kills five Puerto Rico police officers? Yeah. Right? That, that, yeah. that could have been an outcome because you know how those cases go. And oh, so yeah. I said, you're right. Also, right, um, relationships. Um, I had a great relationship with my boss at the time who was uh, Jose Okendo. Um, wow. There was respect and trust there. I had a great relationship with um, Chris Pelletier, who was our ASAC. Right. He trusted me. So I, I did not get a lot of pushback. Um, right. I got some guidance to say, Carlos, here, these are the guardrails. Right. You've been around 15 years. You've done a bunch of this stuff already Just stay within the guardrails. But um, those relationships uh, proved to be uh, very fruitful for me because I wasn't worrying about the admin stuff. And I wasn't worrying about if it went bad, are these guys going to abandon me. Right. There were. They were. Uh, they just gave me room, and they gave me all the help and assistance that that our team needed. Yeah. So, so um, what was what was the investigative strategy on 
on these guys? What was the the main goal? So it worked like this, right? So the guy, so the guy on the left was an unwitting informant. He ran. He had a couple of you know, he had a couple of drug points there on the uh, kind of in, in the out of Cebu area of Puerto Rico, which is like mid island on, on the north coast, right? He brings me. He brings me the guy to the right. Uh, he brings me Omar, and Omar recruits uh, Carlos Oliveras, who, by the way, was an NCO in the 10th Mountain Division prior to him being a police officer in Puerto Rico. Right. right. So the dude had skills. Right. So uh, Jamil is the unwitting informant. The reason I kept him. The reason I kept him around was because he was like the. Uh, he was like the comfort animal for these two guys, right? As long as he was around, they felt comfortable, which was fine because I want them to feel comfortable. And a matter of fact, um, he pled guilty. He was looking at, right? They want to put him in the wayback machine. The thing about him was he was a single parent who had two uh, severely mentally handicapped kids, right? He was the only breadwinner in the family. Besides being a dope dealer, he also worked at a slaughterhouse. Um, I could have cut him out before we did any deals, right? And he wouldn't have caught anything in a conspiracy, really. I mean, minimal, minimal role. I just kept him around to make everybody else feel comfortable. So after, before I went to trial, um, I went to the judge and I, I said, Judge, I, I would recommend, I would recommend uh, probation on this guy. Um, and here's why, right? Um, and the judge did so. So he got, instead of him doing uh, a boatload of time like these guys got, uh, the judge gave him 10 years federal probation. Hmm. So, Carlos, which one of those guys, if any, were you most uncomfortable around? The guy, well, right, the guy that, um, the guy that, um, if, the, if, it, if it had gone bad, the guy that was going to catch it in the face first was the the guy on the uh, bottom left, um, right? So the deal here was the deal. They would meet me in a parking lot. Um, I would give them a burner phone, right? I would give them a burner phone, and I would give them the keys to a rental car. I would tell them, "Hey, follow me." They would follow me to point B, where an, uh, another undercover agent. Uh, would be waiting for me. I would call that undercover agent. He would drive in with the sham kilos. I would get out of my car. I would go to the trunk of that car and I would transfer the load into the police vehicle that, I, that these two guys were driving. And then I would tell them, meet me at point C, follow me to point C, where once I got there, I would call in a third undercover agent. He would come, he would drive up. I would get out of my car. Um, I would get out of my car, call the cops. They would drive in with the load. They'd pop the trunk. I would take that load, put it in the other agent's vehicle. He would drive away, and I would tell these guys, meet me back at, at the original staging area, where they would then give me back the keys to the rental. They would give me back the burner phone, and then I would pay them $4,000 a piece for the trip. That's how it worked. And we did a total of uh, – with these two guys, uh, we did a total of f uh, five of these type of trips. One of them, we did, we unloaded a boat, uh, uh, and uh, it was 330, 330 kilos, uh, three, 310, 300, which were cocaine, and 30 kilos of heroin. And we did wow. that with four. Uh, these guys recruited another set of cops so there was four total man logistically um what are we talking how big of how big of a crew was backing you up on this so great question george right logistically that's and this is and this is where I, um right talk about the the trust and respect and and uh the good working relationship with the chain of command they did not blink. Anything I asked for, they didn't blink. So we have 40, we have 40 people do this, right? Because uh, we did we did not want to see these guys are cops, right? They they know what we know. So we did not want them to ever see the same car twice. Right? So we had 
a covered team at point A. We had a covered team at point B. And we have a, we had a covered team at point C. So that was 30 right there. And then we had a follow team of 10 with a plane. And so these guys, the rule was don't, don't even put eyes on these guys. You guys are there in case these guys divert from somewhere and they rip open those packages or, right, they stop somewhere and they pick up more people or whatever. Right, you're there as an emerge. You're there as a QRF. Um, so it was forty. It was forty people just to do one of these deals. It was a huge undertaking. Wow. So, so with all all of these carefully laid plans, you mentioned earlier that you wound up with a couple of Inspector Clouseau moments. Do you want so, to talk about one, or do you want to let it lay? So the. By the way, this this picture right here, this is when we first met. Uh, this is the first deal. I walked I walked up on them, and they said, "Hey, lift up your shirt." <laughs> <laughs> right? My pistol. I had a pistol. It wasn't. I had a pistol in the car, but I'm wired right there, right? And you know, I hit the. Uh, I'm not going to go into where the, what I was wearing for a wire and stuff like that, but right. I mean. I could lift. I, the reason I did that is was in anticipation for if these guys wanted to get cute and do that, right? But um, so the night before we met to do that 300 kilo deal at that uh, at that little marina, not too far from the from the airport, um, I brought down uh, Special Agent Richie Zayas uh, with me, right? Because you know Richie is is probably one of the, if not the best, you see at ATF. Um, I, right. So I need I I wanted to be with him uh, to make me feel more comfortable. And plus, I, I also wanted another gun with me, you know, in case it went to shit. It, we'd have two guns there instead of one. Um, so I knew the general manager at a hotel. I'm not going to say which hotel it is. Um, and I called him and I get, I told him, hey, I need I need three rooms. I need two rooms side by side, and I need one way down the end of the hallway. Put them under this name, and I gave him my undercover name. He says, no problem. So we go to the hotel, set the hotels up, right? we wire up the rooms. Um, we meet the bad guys that night. They're going to stay in the hotel because we're going to get up at dark 30, go to that marina, unload that boat. Right. And do, and do the thing. So when Richie and I meet with them that night, um, right, they were asking a lot of questions. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a funny story that happened there. But anyway, um, so they go, they, I don't know if they went drinking or whatever. Anyway, we wake up the next morning and I get up uh, and you know how at hotels, when you're checking out that morning, they slip the bill underneath the door. So I get up, I get up, I walk over to the door, pick up the piece of paper, and I look at the bill. And it has my undercover name, but right underneath it, it says ATF. <laughs> oh, no. so, right? So right, they're, all the rooms are under my name to include the room that these guys slept in the night before, right? Oh. So me and Richie are looking at each other. It's like, hey, what do we do? Right? So he goes, hey, go outside, look over the railing, you see if they're down there. So I open up, I look, we're on the ninth floor. I look down and these guys are downstairs eating breakfast in full police uniform. So I come back, I go, hey, they're eating breakfast. And we're like, well, what do you want to do? And it's like, well, if they thought we were the police, they would have came here in the middle of the night. I mean, and try to kill us or they would have left. <laughs> right. So they don't know anything. So he goes, he goes, hey, walk down to their room and, uh, and see if, see if the bill's there. And I'm like, you walk down to the other room, right? <laughs> so I walk down to the room because I look down again. I go, okay, no one's in the room. I open the door because I have the keys. I open the door and, they, and there was the, the folio right there laying face down undisturbed, right? So I knew they hadn't looked at it, but I picked it up and it said the same thing like the last one. It had my name, my undercover name with ATF oh. underneath it. Um. I mean, that's right. I mean, talking about a huge, 
operational yeah. uh, 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 operational security faux pas, George. Right, right. right. Oh man, well, what did you do with the folio? I took it, put it in my pocket. <laughs> I said, "Man, hey, fellas, I got your room. It's all covered." <laughs> so the, right the night that meeting the night before was when was when these two other cops came right, and and the guy from the Tenth Mountain Division didn't know them, and so. He tries to punk them out, and he kind of manned up on them and kind of stood on. He was a big kid, right? So he kind of stood over these two guys and started pointing, saying, hey, we all know each other. We've done business together. I don't know you guys. I don't know what you bring to the table, but I know what he brings, and he brings it. And, like, he is literally on top of this kid. And so he stands up, and now they're facing each other, and poor Richie's in the middle. Oh, right. Geez. And everybody's armed. These guys are armed. Right. And I'm sitting there going, I'm praying. I'm going, please let this be on tape. Right. This is this is the best. This is the best undercover tape that's ever been made. Right. Two sets of cops kind of going at each other. Um, and guess what? It didn't, didn't work. It, it, it came out on audio. It didn't come out on video. Oh, it was it was um, awesome. It was the, it was awesome. And I'm thinking, again, right? I'm thinking, man, if this breaks bad, um, right? If this breaks bad, who's who's the first who's the first guy I'm going to shoot in the face, right? Yeah. Um, and who do you call? Right. You know, you're, you're you're in a gunfight with the with uniformed police. Who do you call? Right. You know. Goodness gracious. And how are you going to convince the real cops that come who exactly. the good guys are and the bad guys are? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So it was uh, that was the thing about this. Um, it, I think there's a picture that, you know, when we were at the dock. Um, and I apologize because the videos didn't come out. Right. So go back. So, right. You know, top left hand corner right there. Right. This is this is a this is a public marina. Right by the airport in Puerto Rico. Matter of fact, the mounted unit and the canine division of Puerto Rico Police Department. It's about a nine nine iron away from where these guys are walking, uniformed policemen with wheelbarrows to unload 330 kilos of sham cocaine and sham heroin. Uh, um, when we were walking back, when the thing was offloaded and we were walking back, me and Richie, these guys were in front of us, right? And this is kind of an out-of-the-way place. And I go, hey, Richie, when – when we get off this dock and we hit dry land, they have 330 kilos of cocaine and heroin, right? Yeah, that's that's a couple of that's millions and millions of dollars, right? I go, they don't they don't need us. Right? <laughs> they don't need us. So if they, if we're about to get into it, get ready because once once we hit dry land, if it's gonna if it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen in about 30 seconds. Um, so, so when we hit dry land, I was just focused on what these guys were doing. I looked to my left and Richie boogied to the left and he went, he was smart, right? He went to get a position of cover, right? Yeah. I'm an idiot. And I followed him. I was right in the middle of all of them unloading the stuff, which was kind of stupid again, inspector Clouseau in it. Right. Um, tactically that was not the best place to be. Because, I mean, they could have popped me in the head, left me right there. The stuff was already in the cars. They just could have drove away. But fortunately for me, they didn't. Where'd they get yeah. the wheelbarrows? From the, are those yeah. the marina's wheelbarrows, or did they bring their own wheelbarrows? No, no. They were right there. I, I, right? All of a sudden, I look, and I'm like, hey, let's use these. Yeah, the, I, marina, the marina probably provides them for the boat owners and stuff to bring the stuff down. What's the funny boat. is when we were unloading, when we were unloading these things that we put them in uh, the, you know, the big, thick, uh, hefty garbage bags that you use for leaves, you know, the real thick ones. And uh, one of the undercovers, Edwin Cologne, uh, was, in, was in the boat and he was handing me one of the packages and right. It was wet. And it was humid. I almost, I almost dropped the thing in the water. Okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right. Joe undercover almost drops, you know, a packet of, oh. uh, you know, I think I think there were we had ten of them, so there were thirty 
30 kilos a piece, right? So I almost dropped 30 sham kilos of cocaine into, into, into the bay. So, so after you offload the boat, um, did you have another one of those roving, you know, uh, bogus deliveries and, Correct. and they so just went along from there? We went, we went to a home Depot parking lot, um, and they parked one of the undercovers showed up in a, in a, you know, the 15, uh, 15 person Econo line van, mm. we pulled right up. We used the, uh, we used the carts, uh, you know, you know, the Home Depot ones, the flat ones, the big ones where you put all yeah. the stuff on. <laughs> we went, grabbed those, put 300 champ kilos on top of those, and we walked right across the parking lot, loaded them up to a van, and drove away. And this wow. is broad daylight, right? No one's paying attention. Or if they were, they weren't saying anything. But again, right, these guys are uniformed policemen, right? They're, and the reason... The, the, the reason this thing worked was if they took a stop and they're in uniform, right? The, any cop or you guys were both road cops, you're going to walk up on them. Hey, how you doing, fellas? Oh, I didn't know you were on the job, right? Get back in his car and leave. Yeah. Wow. Um, What's the big climax? How, how do we set the big climax so, up? Or so what was one, one last story here with, with this. On this deal, we were talking about recruiting more people and um, recruiting more people and setting up the next load. And this was when I was in an outlet mall uh, just outside San Juan. And so while this is going on um, at this outlet mall, I'm, I'm the guy with the light blue shirt with, next to that white pole. Right, the informant is sitting on a bench. The guy next to me is a cop, and the guy in the white hat is one of the cops and the unwitting. Anyway, during this deal, while I'm standing there, I look up and I see a friend of mine who is a former Puerto Rico police officer, former uh, Bureau of Prisons Corrections officer in LA. That's where I met him when I was an agent in LA. Um, and he had left BOP and went back to PR to open up his own private investigator business. Uh, so while I'm sitting there, I look up and he's walking directly at me with his teenage daughter. Mm. Right. So he's about, he's going to walk into a deal with he, right. He knows I'm an agent. Obviously he knows these guys are cops, right? Cause the guy in the white shirt, those are his police pants on. He just got off to, he just got off of work. He just took off the blue shirt, right? Oh. So I mean, it's it's going to be evidently clear to him that that guy is also a cop. So I'm sitting. This is not going to go good. Um, mm. And as he's walking towards me, and I'm dying a little bit at a time, um, at the very last second, he turns off to the right and goes into one of the stores. But I thought this is it. This is going to get real bad real quick right here. Um, oh. All right, so the big ending here, Pete, is I am driving to work. Oh, no. Before that, we recruit more cops as a result of that deal. We're going to go meet in a different place. While I'm there, um, my cover team, it was, number one, it was my fault, right, because I, it was a wrong place to have a deal. Um it just wasn't right. And I, I, I realized that when I'm sitting there going, uh, my, uh, we stand out like sore thumbs here, right? These guys are cops. They're going to know something's up. So as these guys are driving up, I am giving one of these real quick. I just went like this real quick to uh, one of the cover team guys. I just went like that. Well, these cops saw that and they smelled a rat. And oh. they, they dropped phones. They dropped everything. Um, so I sent the informant back and he's like, Oh no, something's wrong. He was giving people signs and he goes, yeah, he saw you guys. He thought, he thought there was counter surveillance. He didn't want you guys showing up. So he did this, but the, right. These guys ain't stupid. Right. And so that was the end. They wouldn't meet with me anymore. So we were dead mm. in the water. So now, right. we got to start trying to indict them and right. That, that doesn't happen overnight. Right. I mean, that takes 
that takes time. Uh, so as we were working that, um, I'm driving to work one morning. The news comes on. It's a news conference with the, the SAC of the FBI in Puerto Rico and the and the uh, the Puerto Rico police superintendent. They're having a press conference. They had a police corruption case. Guess what? They started talking about tactics and techniques, right? Oh. On how they did that. Well, guess what? Those guys, remember I told you Courtney Sharn was our guy? Yeah. Well, when we were having all that success, they asked him, hey, how how you guys structure your deal? So court told them how we structured it. So they did it exactly the same way, and they was start, starting to have success, right? Well, they gave that up at this news conference, and guess what? The cops were listening to that news conference. So now wow. we have to go and send a rescue team to go grab the informant, right? Because we think, and these bad guys are going to go and whack him, right? I got to go into hiding. My brother, who was a, was a federal probation officer in Puerto Rico, um, kind of looks like me, right? So we had to put him in hiding until we could get these guys into custody, which was about, right? It took, um, it took a few days because we told them, hey, we, can't, we, gotta, we have to arrest these guys by complaint. We don't have time to get everything in order to do an indictment because... <clears throat> Right. I mean, we're we got to get these guys locked up so we can move about freely. And so they agreed to that and we arrested them by complaint. And all we did was just call them in. They came to the police station and they were arrested. Now, what were, were these guys? Were these guys street cops? Were they? Did they yeah, have so in, right. so, indoor uh, assignments? These guys are out every day locking people up for different crimes and stuff. That's right. So these guys are just regular patrolmen. Uh, the first two of them, they were, you know, like mid-island. I didn't have to worry about them. Um, when the uh, this guy right here and the guy below, their precinct was less than a mile from my house. Oh. Matter of fact, I came out of my apartment one day, and these guys were on the street corner by the Walgreens uh, having a coffee or a Coke or something like that. I almost had a heart attack. And so we had to call the Puerto Rico police department and get these guys transferred away from the San Juan Metro area so I could move around. Right. As it was, I really wasn't going into the office at regular hours. Right. I would go in at night and I would take the service elevator because our office is where the U S attorney's office is at. Um, so right. I mean, Puerto Rico is kind of small, right? So, um, there was a lot of OPSEC issues and logistics and stuff like that. Um, to, to, Try to be as safe as you can. So what happens how, next? I'm sorry, George. Go ahead. Okay, George. How, how many how many hours of uh, electronic surveillance do you have on this total? Do you think? Oh, um, you know, I was looking at uh, over the weekend. I was looking at the court transcripts. It looks like a uh, yellow pages. Golly. Did, did you have to transcribe transcribe all the all the recordings? You know how it goes, Pete, right? Everybody, <laughs> hey, all right, everybody thinks all oh, on the cover is what you see on TV. It's glamorous <laughs> and stuff like that. It's a pain in the ass. They didn't have a they didn't have a vendor do that for you. No, there was no vendor. It was me. Jeez, <laughs> oh, what a pain in the ass. Right? It's hard. No, you know what? We actually we did. We had to get a vendor, but. Again, right, uh, Court Sean helped us out because they, I think the FBI had a vetted of course they did. because it was a police corruption <laughs> case, right? Right. So we were able to hire them. But you still uh, had so to, you, you still had to probably verify it, go over. Oh, absolutely. You gotta go, you gotta go over every single one of those yeah. transcripts. And hey, right, these are police corruption cases. They're going to trial for right. the most part. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and and we went to trial, um, a great trial, right? Uh, I think I was the first ATF agent in history to call a sidebar from the witness stand. <laughs> right. So what happens is again, Pete, right. Talking about transcripts on the first transcript, right. Again, um, inspector Clouseau on the first transcript, I for, I forgot to black out the informant's real name. Ooh. Oh, Ooh. right. So when Everybody's jury seated. Everybody's ready to go, right? The U.S. attorney hands me the transcript book. 
He's getting ready to play the tapes. I open the book, right? We've been prepping for trial for months, right? First page out, it's the informant's full name, right? So, as you guys know, it's against ATF policy to out an informant unless you have permission, right? right. right? So I'm sitting there, the U.S. attorney, great guy, uh, um, Ernesto Lopez was a trial attorney. He's passed away. He's the, he was the best. He's the best. So Ernesto sits there. He fixes his tie right, sets everything up. He starts ready to for direct. And I look, and I look at him, and he knows something's up. And he's looking at me like, what's this maniac about to do, right? And I look over at the judge, and I said, judge, can we have a sidebar? No way. <laughs> Sort of guy. And the judge kind of looks over her glasses like, are you serious? And she goes, okay, right? So everybody goes up. I get up from the witness uh, uh, booth there. I walk up to the judge. I said, judge, I've made a mistake. I've clearly identified the informant here. Um, on cross, the defense obviously has seen this. Right? They're going to ask me who the informant is. They're going to ask me his name. I go, by ATF policy, I can't divulge that information unless I have direct permission. So I go, this will take me two minutes. Let me go make a phone call outside to Miami, explain what happened, and I'll have permission. So she goes, go ahead. So I went outside, called my ASAC, told him what happened. He goes, go ahead. And so I came back in. I said, Judge, we're ready to go. And right, I, I had to out him, right? But um, again, um, right? My, hey, look, I had 15, almost 15 years on the job at this time, right? I had done a lot, a lot of undercover, right? I had been teaching at the academy. I mean, this was talking about yeah. the mistakes, uh, right? Again, attention to detail. Um, there's a million. Okay. There's a million details, though, you know, and people right. don't understand that. There's a million. Right. So and these, so these guys end up going to trial. One guy pleads guilty. He gets ten years. The rest of these knuckleheads, they they want to go to trial. Um, they got hammered. They got they got hammered. They got like sixty five years. Um, but there was a there was a jury issue, and um, on appeal, they got a retrial. Um. This is years down the line. And so um, the original assistant U.S. attorney on this, Ernesto Lopez, had passed away. Um, and they said, hey, would you mind if we just give these guys 15 years? And I said, no, nah, I don't, right? They've done enough. They got, they ended up getting like, right? 65 years is life. These guys were in their late 20s, early 30s, right? Yeah. I mean, these guys were going to do life. Um so they, they ended up doing, I think they're all out now, uh, just recently out. They've been out three or four years, but um, it was it was a uh, it was a learning experience, um, right? You think after 15 years doing a lot of this stuff, you think you know a lot. Um, there's always something to learn. Carlos, were you the case agent as well as the the lead undercover? I was. Yeah, we we had talked about that in a in a in a previous episode. We had Lou uh, Velozian, and we were talking about as a boss. That was one of the mistakes I made was letting my lead undercover also be the case agent. And yeah. it's just one of those things where you're you're trying to focus on so many things from a tactical perspective, but then you got to prepare for trial and and do all that. It's a lot, so it's easy to see, you know, how you make that mistake. Yeah. And right again, I was I was fortunate. Um, we had a lot of senior ATF agents in Puerto Rico at that time with a lot, a lot of street time, um, which was great. Right. Because um, and I mean, the whole office was involved. Uh, I was a case agent. Because I pulled the case number, you know, um, yeah. but this was this was a talk about a team effort. This was every literally all the groups in the office, right? We had three groups in Puerto Rico, all three groups, and every single task force officer was involved in this. You know, there there was some there was some cultural pressure within the organization back then 
to be the case agent and the undercover on your own case rather than become what they remember they would refer to somebody as an undercover fox where all you did was undercover work right. for other people and, and at the time back then it was somewhat somewhat frowned upon especially when your your the evaluation of your work depended upon your your ability to lead and uh sort of manage the investigation the entire investigation rather than one investigative uh, 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 tactic like undercover. Um, so it took a while. I, I guess it took a while to shed, shed that as, as ATF became more deeply involved in long-term undercover cases. Um, uh, you know, the, the special, uh, undercover programs, the backstopping. I mean, when I did this work there, you the way you backstopped yourself, you went to the motor vehicle department and you talked right. to some inspector that you know <laughs> into taking your picture and giving you a license with a phony address. That was your backstop. I mean, um, right. it yeah, wasn't. I mean, right. It was, yeah, you're right, Pete. But you know, and uh, I'm an amateur ATF historian, Pete. Um, Right. What the work that your generation did for my generation, uh, you guys set the foundation. There is no undercover program uh, um, if, if you guys don't do what you do. And right. It's a natural evolution of things. Right. And we have smart guys like John Cooper and Kim Baylog and, and Frank Delisio, who right built that uh, built that undercover program, which. As you know, right, the more comfortable you feel, um, the better off you're going to be and the more believable you're going to be, right? And I had zero qualms about giving police officers my undercover ID. And I said, hey, investigate till the cows come home. I'm who, I'm who I say I am. And I had, I had 100% certainty that they were going to come back uh, and not find anything. You know, which, which is which, right? If you have peace, as you guys know, if you have peace of mind as a UC, um, that is devastating to the bad guys in an investigation. Oh, you got to be comfortable in your role. You can't be something yeah. you're not. You've got to be comfortable in your role. That's like the first law of uh, undercover work. Carlos, what what was the attitude of um, the Puerto Rico Police Department after you get take off? How many guys did you take down? Six, eight, ten guys? We took off uh we took off five, but we left we left a lot on in the field, right? Because yeah. we knew we knew that these guys knew more cops that were dirty. We we didn't identify them because I pulled this nonsense and yeah. uh, and we got found out, you know. But um hey I see right, Puerto Rico Police Department, uh those guys and gals they're all hard man right yeah um they get after it and this case was was brought to us by them uh right it, you guys know this we don't um pete you were talking about this earlier right the, all these guys were these guys were bad guys with badges right right yeah at some point they decided they decided that that oath that they took meant nothing and uh all they were was bad guys with badges and I remember thinking, you know what? These guys are, are going to radio calls, right? These guys are going to someone's mom's house. They're stopping your sister on the street on a right. traffic stop, whatever, right? These guys, these guys had infiltrated the Puerto Rico Police Department, um, and these guys were nothing but crooks with badges. And who, right, who knows we, what, what else they that. did? Who knows what, what else they did? What other damage they did? You know, there was some talk, and we could never prove this. On one of the deals, they were talking about they went camping, and they set off a gigantic forest fire. Mm. Um, but we could never prove that it was them, mm. right? But they were talking about it. I also didn't show there, but, you know, I bought an, a stolen AR-15 rifle from one of those guys. <laughs> wow. Jesus. Right? And you know how we 
at first it was a hard time trying to identify these guys looking at right i mean i'm trying to look at their badges but you know you know how that goes um yeah the how we identified one of them was when he gave me the rifle he wrapped it in his police jacket with his name on it <laughs> and <laughs> another inspector clouseau moment yeah there you go good grief right well i i think uh think somebody wants to talk to you uh, before we do that um what impact did this have on your your personal life Ooh, that's a whole nother show right i'll tell you i don't mind telling you this right you guys i'm you're like my dad for Christ's sake. um um so my my professional life, and george can tell you george you're not gonna, you're not gonna make us cry or anything now no, are you? I'm, mean, just no. Saying, I'm just telling you and I'm not the only one, right? I mean, uh, look, my personal life was a shit show, right? My professional life was awesome, um, right? But my personal life was a complete, complete shit show. Um, and so, um, right, thank God, right, that God loves uh, idiots and ATF agents. And, um, and drunks, don't forget drunks. And drunks, right? And around this time, around this time, I was I was introduced to my current wife. Um, um, dude, if that doesn't happen, if that doesn't happen, um, I would have been fired. As it, the way I was going, uh, the way I was going, I would have I would have been fired by ATF. There's no zero doubt in my mind about that. She made was, you an honest man. Yeah, right. I mean, well, no, she gave me hope, right? I decided, right? I decided, hey, do you do you want to turn out to and you guys, right? We've seen we've seen this before, right? We've seen we've seen good guys um because of the job, lack of discipline, woe is me type of nonsense, uh burn down their private life and yeah. to the point where they, they eat their gun or they get fired. Right. That was, yeah. I was, that was, I was on, I was on the, the fast track to that. Um, and by sheer luck, I met my wife and I just, I made a hard decision, right? Do I, do I want to, do I want to continue down the path to nowhere or do I want to take some responsibility for what I'm, for my actions and, and try to do something about this? And that's what I did, you know, with a lot of help from guys like George and well, a lot of people who, who were looking out for me um guiding me along the way um right i was able i was able to turn it around and and um you know i kind of um did a hard 90 degree turn and and went the other way right i you know became an atf supervisor right and i you know i uh, well, i think it's admirable that you would you would attribute that to meeting your wife she must be a very special person and i'm yeah. i'm sure that every wife listening to this is uh, beaming with with pride, hearing you say what yeah. you just said. I, I, yeah, now right. I don't. I don't think she. Uh, on some days, she rues the day that we were introduced. But <laughs> yeah, they um, all they all go to the same school, Carlos. Don't yeah, worry about it. it. Um, but yeah, I mean that's uh, that's what was that's what was happening, man. I was and George could tell you, man. I was I was out of control. Look who there, just there were some, us. There were some moments. Hey, uh, hey, Carlo. Um, you know, we were sort of uh, drawing straws for who was going to be on the program tonight. It couldn't be all, all three of us interviewing you. So I drew the the shortest straw, so I got to miss out. But sitting here listening, um, the only thing we're missing is uh, some cigars. Great, <laughs> uh, great, uh, great story, and there's. I could tell there's a lot more to these stories as well. Actually, I know there is, but thanks for coming on, and uh, thanks for thanks for sharing your story with us, and uh, thanks for being a friend. And uh, hey, I like on all seriousness, I appreciate uh, I appreciate all you guys and um, um, everything you guys have done for me. Um, I I would like the opportunity to come back and talk about uh crime gun <laughs> intelligence absolutely uh, yeah. i call uh 
both Pete and Ray literally two or three times a day asking all sorts of questions. And I appreciate you guys' patience with me. And uh, right. Uh, right, just I think crime gun intelligence is is the future of policing. Well, I think I I, yeah. I think that's a great suggestion, and and I think we'd be remiss if we don't mention that uh, the the critical role now that you're retired that you're playing in crime gun intelligence with your new 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 gig your new employer maybe you might want to take a minute to talk about the the very unique uh piece of crime gun intelligence that you're the expert yeah. in now oh i right i'm I work for a great company. I don't say that because I work. You guys know that I have zero filter, which is um, <laughs> gets me in trouble a lot of the times. But I work for a great company, and that, that company is called ShotSpotter. And I'm a part of a team of uh, retired law enforcement executives and intel analysts that um, right help help uh, police departments who are our clients with their um, with their uh, gun violence problem, and it's. Uh, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic company um, to work for and a lot of smart people, a lot of very passionate people um, that want to give back, want to still be of service to the community, but from the private sector. And um, um, we are heading into that crime gun intelligence um, lane here coming up and um I think it's I think it's a move in the right direction, and I think we'll be able to help out a lot of these police departments that are that they're and the communities that are suffering from this uh, very real gun violence problem that's that's plaguing our country and has been plaguing our country. So um, I'm just I'm fortunate uh, I'm just fortunate to, I landed on my feet after retirement, and uh, I'm fortunate that I work at a great place with a really lot of great people. You know, I, I, I think awesome. I, I think it's uh, it's a good idea you come back and talk about that. I, I think we need to let the public know that what Shot Spotter does um, when it comes to you know gunfire out on the street outside your bedroom window. Um, Shot Spotter calls the cops when nobody else does. That's right. Yeah. That's, you're right. It's it's it's. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, technology. Um, when used correctly, you can have a huge impact on your community's gun violence problem. Outstanding. Yep. Well, I think that's a wrap. And you thought you'd only be able to talk for five minutes, and we're uh, just just at an hour. Wow! Imagine that. <laughs> well, you can edit it down to seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's hey, you know what? I, I know we're breaking here, but did you tell the story? Because uh, I've been trying to work some controls here. Did you tell the story about uh, these pictures? I don't remember if you did. I I did not. So right then, um, right. Just, just finish up because we're only keeping Pete from dinner, which is awesome. Okay. So, so, right. God, God also you're has. Gonna, you're going to pay for this. I'm going to tell you. You're going to pay for this. <laughs> I was talking, telling George, right? God has a great sense of humor. The the picture on my left, on the left, um, when you're looking at the screen, right? That picture was taken during this police corruption case, right? That was in one of the supervisors' offices in Puerto Rico. That's what I looked like during that case. Um, I was a street agent there. That was in that was sometime in the spring of 2000 and Five. Um, the picture on the right was taken uh, sometime in 2016, and uh, that I was a special agent in charge of the Miami Field Division. Um, Puerto Rico falls under the Miami Field Division. So, uh, what you know? What's that? Eleven years. Eleven years later, I come back and I head up. The same field division where I worked, that undercover case. And George and I were laughing earlier. That guy on the left, if there was a contest at ATF, picked the guy that will never, ever get into any kind of leadership role. 
at ATF. Right, George? The guy on the left would have I would have put all my money on that guy. Yeah, I, I would argue uh before we say goodnight, um the guy on the left would not become a supervisor. But that guy on the left, he's a leader. No doubt in my military mind whatsoever, brother. Um and and you are a leader. Uh as a case agent, uh, as a group soup, uh, as a sack, and as a dad, I, I could always count on uh, on your leadership. So um, I understand about being a supervisor, but you're a leader, brother. No, no doubt about it. And uh, with that, I love you, man. Love Good night. You, you know, I'm, real quick, I don't know if you remember this, George, but we were in Colorado Springs when I would remember that. When, yeah. I, when I found out that I had been promoted to a special agent in charge, Georgia and I were eating uh, bad eggs at some uh, <laughs> hotel in Colorado Springs when uh, Tommy Brandon came to me and said, hey, congratulations. You are, uh, you've been, uh, you've gotten your uh, senior executive service uh, certification. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Good night, sir. Pete, final words. Let's break it here so you can go eat. This was his story tonight about a, not a special agent, a very special agent, Carlos Canino. One of the best, one of the icons of ATF. We love you, bud. Have love a good you. Night. Thank you. Appreciate it. Talk to you guys Stay later. Stay safe, brother. Yep, you too. Bye-bye.